following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Perhaps, boys and girls, you've been with your parents, big crowd, maybe at the mall or at the fair, and you look around and suddenly you're gone. Does that happen? You know how you feel? Little one walks up and grabs the first pant leg that he sees. He looks up. You're not my daddy. But it's even worse if you're in that place and you think that your daddy went off and left you, forgot about you. But we have friends, a couple of different families where uh, large families traveling across country stop to get a service station to put uh, gas in the car and they take off and they left one of their children. Can you imagine how that child felt in some foreign place as their family drives off in the van? It is a terrible feeling. We as adults have found ourselves uh, uh, lost in strange places, maybe places it's not even safe to be, but more importantly, we too have experienced uh, desertion. Some of you have experienced desertion of friends. Some of you have experienced desertion of spouses. And you know something of that agony of desertion. But this morning, I want to speak to you about an awful kind of desertion. Spiritual desertion. Being deserted by God. Some of you have been there and have already experienced this. Others of you, perhaps, in your life will experience it. You uh, young men preparing for ministry or to be office bearers in the church, you're going to have to deal with people who find themselves in a situation uh, very similar to what Job is describing here in the second half of Job chapter 13. As he now speaks out of the reality of spiritual desertion, of dereliction. This is the middle of Job's response, his last speech to the first section of speeches to Zophar. He, he begins by rebuking Zophar and about his flimsy and, and uh, light knowledge of God. Zophar's talked about the infinity of God, but Job goes much deeper. He talks about the, the wise and powerful providence of God at work in the lives of men and women. And, and then, as we saw last week, he uh, turns to his conscience, and he, and he teaches us two very important truths about conscience, and that is a good conscience fortifies you uh, in the midst of slander, and second, a good conscience emboldens you to come to God. And that's where he ends uh, there in verse 19, that he's got this confidence that um, God's going to hear him. God is going to vindicate him, and he is going to uh, be able then uh, to die. So he said at the end there that he wants to address God and that's what we find now in verse 20. That Job is addressing God but he's addressing God in the awful dark reality of spiritual desertion. And that's what we see uh, in these verses. A derelict believer seeking God from whom he feels hopelessly estranged. The plea, the cry of a derelict believer seeking God from whom he feels hopelessly estranged. 
We'll look at the plea of the derelict believer, uh, the condition of the derelict believer, and the despair of the derelict believer. We'll begin in verses 20 and 21 with the plea. So he said he wants to speak to God. He'll take his life in his hands and he'll speak to God. And so we hear him now. Only two things. He's speaking to God. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide from your face. Remove your hand from me. And let not the dread of you terrify me. Now I must confess that as I've wrestled with these two verses, I'm faced with a great problem. Because the unanimous word of the commentators takes verse 21 as a plea that God would remove his hand. But the problem with that, none of them deal with the negative two things. Don't do two things to me. Now the ESV gets around that by simply taking the negative out. Do these things to me. But they have no ground to do that. Um, so I've wrestled with this. I actually had given us said it's, it's very dangerous ever to speak against the majority opinion. But as I've prayed over this and have dealt with this text, uh, it seems to me that I must take uh, the two things in verse 21, both governed by the not. He says he's praying for two things, and he says two things, only two things, do not do to me. Then... I will not hide my face from you. He says, if you don't do these two things to me, then I will be able to come into your presence. He said, how am I going to live in the midst of this despair, this darkness? Well, I take 21, take an ellipsis, supply here the first negative. Don't remove your hand from me. And then the second negative is repeated in the text. Let not the dread of you terrify me. Now, I, I go this as well because um, the, the word hand here is not the hand as the Bible uses that for uh, the oppression of God or of others. It is the palm. And the palm is often used in the Bible for possession, for favor and leading, not for oppression. For example, Psalm 78, verse 72. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful palms. The idea of upholding and sustaining. Or in Psalm 139.5, as the psalmist extols the presence and knowledge of God, he says in verse 5, Thou hast enclosed me behind and before, and laid thy hand, thy palm, upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. You see, the psalmist was being kept by God. Now that's how, at this point, I understand what he's praying here. Now, part of the reason that the comment goes the other direction is this parallels uh, a petition that Job's already made in chapter 9, verse 34. Let him remove his rod from me. Let not the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But I'm not like that in myself. I see the parallel. But I am forced to take this as a plea for grace. A twofold plea for grace. In the first place, he recognizes he can only be sustained by the gracious palm of God. And so he says, whatever else you're doing, in my awful despair, don't remove that palm, that guiding hand, that comforting hand from me. And then secondly, he pleads that God would not, that the dread of 
him. The dread of God himself terrify him. Now, you know, it's very important as you pray that you keep a record of answers to prayer, that you note those things that God does. It's important in our prayer meeting. We should do more of this uh, to come in and not just share requests, but to share answers to prayer. Think how God answered Job's prayer. In the first place, he didn't take away the hand of oppression, but nor did he take away the comforting hand. He sustained Job through the afflictions. He sustained him in such a way, and we'll see this, that even though there'll be declines, uh, that Job's faith continues to grow. He's much like the blind man in, in um, John 9, gets into this argument of who Jesus was and who he was. And with every expression, in the trial, you see his faith becoming more focused and clear in his confession. That happens in Job's case. God did not take away grace, did he? That in the awful darkness and the terrible afflictions that Job suffered, God did not take away the hand of grace. Now, more importantly, God never terrified him with his majesty. Finally, at the end of the dialogues, God, Job's prepared now to come in the presence of God, but God doesn't overpower him. First, he brings Elihu as prophet. And Elihu doesn't terrify Job with God's majesty, but he comes alongside of him as a, a faithful pastor and preacher and prepares him. And then even as God comes to him in the black cloud and storms, and Job stands before him, Job is not consumed by the holy God. He's catechized. He's humbled. But he's not terrified by majesty. And so, even here you see that in his deepest despair, Job is praying that God, by grace, would sustain him. And God does sustain him. He doesn't see it now. And you might not see it now either. We all are going to have some degree of spiritual darkness. Uh, I chose this Isaiah 50.10 actually for its emphasis that um, what we have here is uh, the feelings of a believer who is hopelessly estranged. We find a remarkable pithy description. Who is it among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? This is the faithful believer. And yet he is walking in darkness and has no light. The Whispered Confession of Faith teaches this reality. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. As by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering, even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. That's where Job is. That's where some of you have been. Perhaps even today you're there. Or you will be there. Or you'll deal with others who are there. But in that, Job is praying. And he asks God for two things. He asks God for grace. And he asks God not to engulf him, to terrify him, to consume him. He's spoken about God being a consuming fire. And he's asking God not to overpower him by his majesty. In this dark state where he finds himself. But he goes on then to describe the condition of that estate um, in his dereliction as we consider the condition of the derelict believer. Um, well, first, excuse me, the answer to prayer, then call and I will answer, or let me speak, then reply to me. And Job is saying if he could speak to God, he would come either as defendant or as plaintiff. 
He said if God summoned him, and this is back to the courtroom language of the previous chapter, if God summoned him into the courtroom, then he would answer. He's glad, so he thinks, to stand before God, if God would remove that terrifying majesty. Or he would come as plaintiff. Uh, let me speak and then reply to me. Now, he continues now to speak. He's speaking to God, not yet in the courtroom, but now he continues this prayer. You see, he began with a plea. Now, in this prayer, he describes the condition, his condition, which is the condition of a derelict believer, by asking three questions in 23 to 25. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble, or will you pursue the dry chaff? Now, by these three questions, Job is describing his own condition with respect to God. Because he sees God as an unrelenting judge, as an irreconcilable enemy, and as a merciless oppressor. That's what these questions expose, you see. In the first place, he sees God as an unrelenting judge in verse 23. How many are my iniquities? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. You know, he's baffled. His friends have pounded him with this reality that he must be a gross sinner, and yet he knows that he is a sinner who has been saved by God's grace. He is a sinner who's being transformed by God's grace. His conscience continues to bear testimony. But what's going on then? Why in the world does God stand over against him as judge? See, so he's not yet escaped this, this concept that the suffering must be because of sin. It's inexplicable to him that God continues to stand over against him and judge him for sins. And it's very comprehensive as he says this. He, he uses the three basic Hebrew words, iniquities, which have to do with the guilt and defilement, sins, omission, and rebellion is the word transgression. The same three words that David uses in his, his psalm of confession. He's saying, where are they? Make me know them. Help me understand why you stand over against me as a judge who does not pardon. Now again, Job begins here in the right place. It's a place that you and I should begin anytime we come into a time of spiritual depression or even more deep distress or lack of assurance or our dereliction is that we first need to search ourselves and uh, see if there's sin involved in this. Um, the confession that we read there says that sometimes that we lose assurance because of some sin on our part or by negligence, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. And the psalmist teaches us in Psalm 139, Lord, search me, know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. And so when you find yourself in this position, then it is important that you examine yourself. We all should anyway. Regularly in our lives, I ask God the Spirit to search us and to show us. And if there's a particular affliction, and it is God's chastening because of a particular sin, it won't act like a rocket scientist to figure it out. It'll be quite obvious. For the Spirit will direct your attention from the affliction to the cause for which God is chasing you. But in Job's case, he sees no pardon. He doesn't understand 
for what he is being punished as it is at this point in his own thinking. And so in his condition, he sees God as a um, relentless judge. He next sees God here as a um, awful um, oppressor in verse 24. Irreconcilable enemy. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Now the idea of the face in the Bible is very important. We often use the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord causes face to shine upon you. The face of God is his sunshine. It is walking uh, in his love and his favor, confident of his presence. It brings the same joy that um, after all this rain is gone, whenever it will be gone, you close your eyes and you look up and you feel the warmth of the sun and joy fills your heart. Now that's the face of God. Uh, but Job says the face of God has turned away from him. So as we saw there in, in Psalm uh, 88, uh, the Lord does remove his face from his people. And that is what Job is experiencing. He's no longer walking. He'd known the favor of God. He's no longer walking in the light of God's favor. He's no longer enjoying the presence of God. God who was his friend has become his enemy. Uh, consider me your enemy. Now he's going to be rebuked for this as he is really for uh, the boldness with which he speaks in verse 22. Although we understand from where he's coming and the anguish uh, even of his present condition. But he sees God no longer as friend. He sees God as an irreconcilable enemy. So an unrelenting judge, an irreconcilable enemy, and now a merciless oppressor. In verse 25, will you cause a driven leaf to tremble? Or will you pursue the dry chaff? He, he thinks of himself now as a dead leaf on the ground, brittle and dry, being tossed and, and blown about by the wind. Or, or the chaff that as the wheat is thrown up in, in the barn and, and the wind blows the chaff away, it is useless. And he's saying that God, who had shown him mercy, who had uh, shown him grace, that now causes him to be driven about like a, a dead autumn leaf or dry chaff, even pursued by God relentlessly. God's become his oppressor. That's, that's all that he can see at this point. And so the condition of a man in this position is he sees God as a, an unrelenting judge and irreconcilable enemy as a merciful, merciless oppressor. But I want you to think about someone else who experienced the exact darkness that Job describes here. Now the psalmist has experienced it in other places. In Psalm 77, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Job himself uh, earlier he had this great burden. Um, 
He says, the arrows, they all mighty are within me, they're poison, my spirit drinks. Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set thy target so I'm a burden to myself? You see, God had become his enemy. But God became the enemy of someone else. God became the enemy of our Savior as he hanged on Calvary's cross. Hear these words and compare them with what Job cries out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you're holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In, our, in you our fathers trusted. They, they trusted. You delivered them. To you they cried and were delivered. And you they trusted were not disappointed. But I, I'm a worm, not a man. Reproach of men, despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Because he delights in him. Yet, you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from my birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. You see, you can take your experience when you walk through that valley of the shadow of death. You can take an experience of a man like Job or the psalmist in Psalm 88 and, and use those experiences to help you grasp the greater reality of what your Savior bore for you on Calvary's cross so that you will never be cast off by God. You might think you've been cast off by God, but because he was cast off by God and because you are trusting him as your Savior, you will never be cast off by God. And thus meditate, even in your own dark times, on the suffering and trial of the Savior. So we've seen the plea of the derelict believer. A plea that God would give him grace and would allow him to speak. We hear him speaking now uh, as the next three verses he describes his own condition. As he sees God relating to him as an unrelenting judge and an irreconcilable enemy and a merciless oppressor. Uh, we come then to his despair. And you'll find these times in the book of Job where he does fall into despair, as he does now in these last three verses. For you write bitter things against me and make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in stocks, watch my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. While I'm decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Now pay attention. Even though what we have here is... It's kind of a poetry. You've got dialogue. There's always a logic to it. So look how verse 26 begins. It begins with this connective, rightly translated in the New American Standard, for. So he's described his condition. That God is this unrelenting judge, this irreconcilable enemy, uh, this merciless oppressor. Now Job says, now here's why, I, here's why I feel this way. Here's where I am. In my experience. And the three things he describes here match the three things he's just said. So first, he explains why he sees God as an unrelenting judge and why he's in despair. Verse 26, for you write bitter things against me and make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. 
Uh, the script, the writing of bitter things, is a reference to judges or princes writing out not just the indictment, but the punishment that is being brought against an evil doer. The word bitter is, is the word that uh, Naomi uses. Uh, her name meant pleasant, but when she returned, she did not call me Naomi, call me Mara. That's this word bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And Job is saying that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with him and in such a way that he doesn't know what his sins are. And so basically he says that uh, you make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. And the word inherit means you bring back to mind. You, you, you make these now part of my indictment. And Job's thinking, you know, I've confessed those sins. I confessed them long ago. I was regular in my sacrifices to God in my confession of sin. Yes, yes, I had iniquities in my youth. But Lord, why now? For what else could he be punishing him? He, he realized that he'd been walking uprightly with God. That he was blameless and upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. It must then be the sins of his youth that God calls to mind and refuses to forgive. Now God, in our afflictions, does this, my friends. David, in Psalm 25, uh, talks about God not holding the sins of his youth against him. It's a very important lesson. Uh, those sins are forgiven. But God will bring them to your mind to humble you. To increase your repentance. In fact, it's not just the sins of youth that he'll bring to your mind to increase. He'll bring many forgiven sins to your mind in order to humble you. And that's good. Uh, but uh, that's not Job's problem here. But I want to speak to all you young people. Why does the Bible talk about sins of youth? Hmm? Why, why does Solomon in Proverbs so much warn the young people about the, the follies and naivete of, of youth? It is because in our youth we are more prone to sin. In our youth we are more susceptible to the wiles of Satan. In our youth, we've not fully put on the armor of God. And you young people need to realize this. Because it's a treacherous path that lies before you. And that means you must listen carefully to the counsel and correction of your parents. And to the word of God. And under the preaching of God's word. And guard your heart and ask God to protect you. She might not grow older and have to look back. As many of us have looked back on the sins of our youth with great sorrow for wasted years or for sins done against others and sometimes the consequences of those sins living on until you die. And so guard yourselves, my young friends, against the sins of youth. And so he sees in his despair no hope of pardon. He doesn't understand the bitter indictment against him with its punishments that are being enacted against him. Is it because of sins of youth? Uh, in the next verse, he gives the reason for seeing God as an uh, irreconcilable enemy. Verse 27, you put my feet in the stocks. And perhaps you have seen pictures of the stocks. or have been to some of the uh, colonial places where they'll have stocks. They had stocks way back in Job's day. And, and stocks were places that you would put a criminal to keep him secure, but also bring him to open shame. In fact, uh, in, in Britain, uh, if you were put in a stock, people could actually throw rotten stuff at you and egg, even rocks. Um, 
uh, as they came to gawk at you in the stocks. But he said that God's put him in stocks. He's, he's locked him up and, and shamed him. And he says that he's scrutinized all of the paths, all, all the ways of Job's life and set a limit for the soles of his feet that he, he was being so carefully watched over by God he, he didn't deter to the left or, or to uh, to the right. You know, Job expressed his sentiment earlier in, in chapter 7. What is man that thou dost magnify him, that thou art concerned about him, that thou dost examine him every morning and try him every moment? Wilt thou never turn thy gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? He didn't have time to swallow his spit under that intense scrutiny of God. He said, God has become his enemy. And here's the proof. He's exposed him to open shame. Uh, in his afflictions for which there's no remedy. He has scrutinized his path so there's not a, a place for error uh, to be committed. You know, friends cover over our sins with, with love. But Job's saying God was his friend, but God is not covering over his sins. God's holding him to a standard of perfection. And thus he was an irreconcilable enemy. And then the proof that God was, in fact, a merciless oppressor. This is the last statement of despair. Well, I am decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. You remember the description of Job in, in chapter 2, that uh, uh, we find Job sitting uh, in all of his pain and misery on the ash heap. And that ash heap, many have said, would even be the town garbage dump. It was where all things were cast off. And he says that's how God's treating him. Either the, the, the pronoun is he is decaying like a rotten thing. And that could be that God is doing this to him. But most translators, and the Hebrew often does this, simply switches pronouns. I'm decaying. He said I'm like a piece of garbage in the sight of God. That's the state of oppression. A piece of garbage. Or like a moth-eaten garment that is just, it's senseless, you see. It's just being consumed and, and destroyed. And he said that is the extent of his life. And thus he describes the despair of a person who falls under the hand of God into a spiritual depression or desertion. Have you been there? Has this been your plea? Um, that God would show you grace because your condition is that God is before you as an unrelenting judge and an irreconcilable enemy and a merciless oppressor. Have, have you been in such a dark place that uh, you believe God has hid his face from you? Some of you have been there. Some of you have faced uh, awful desertions in this life by people and perhaps that was accompanied by a desertion by God. Or for some other reason. Perhaps it was your sin. Perhaps it was merely the sovereign purposes of God as Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 10. But it is a reality. It's a reality if it happens in your life that I would want you not to be so astonished. 
It's a reality if it happens to those around you that you can be better prepared to come alongside and, and sustain them. Some will be this way because they have what the Puritans call melancholy. William Cooper, the hymn writer, had melancholy. We would call it manic depressive, but it wasn't something you could throw drugs at or give counsel. It was something you had to come alongside a person and just keep encouraging them. But as we've considered this reality of spiritual desertion, let me give you some hints for how to respond. As we see that the, the, the despairing believer is seeking God, but here are some things to do. Uh, and in the first place, I've already mentioned this one, always begin asking God to search you. Is there, in fact, some reason why God has dealt with you in this fashion? As I said, it won't take a rocket scientist to understand it. You come and deal with that sin, and you will know the restored favor of God. But second, this passage helps us. Most of all, the, the Savior helps us, or Psalm 88. This is not a road that you're the first one to travel, you see. And so when you find yourself terribly depressed in, in this dark place, then remind yourself that, well, many of God's saints, it is recorded in Scripture, in the prayers of the Psalms. There's at least three Psalms, Psalm uh, 77, Psalm uh, 44, and Psalm 88, that speak of this uh, awful darkness. Uh, it's a reality of the Christian life. And so when it happens uh, and you see no light, you can tell yourself, uh, this is not unique to me. But third, what God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, when he talks about those who have uh, been in this situation, uh, and, and that is to trust in God. To trust in God. Look to Him. So that as we, as we read... Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness, has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That you just must look to him because he's faithful. You must look to the Lord Jesus Christ who himself endured these things for you. We read in, we read in, in Hebrews chapter 13 that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he was as the second person of the Godhead to the saints of the old covenant. What he was on earth. What he has been throughout the history of the church. He has not changed. You know the, the psalmist in Psalm 77 says it's, it's to, his, to his despair. Uh, uh, that uh, God uh, has changed. It's his grief he says. But God does not change. And so you, you must just tell yourself that and look to him, cling to him, cling to the Lord Jesus Christ when you find yourself in this situation. Just keep looking, keep clinging, keep praying, which is what it is to trust in God, although it'll seem to you that your prayers are bouncing back to you. You keep praying because you know that they're not bouncing back to you because he said, those that fear God and walk in no light keep trusting in him. Fourth, trust the promises of God. That's again why we read uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 13, uh, where God promises never to leave us or forsake us. He promises to uh, provide so well uh, for us. 
I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Or Romans chapter 5, where we're given the certainty of justification, but you'll notice how that's tied to the reality of endurance. Or the great promise of our adoption in Romans chapter 8, but part of our inheritance is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You take hold of those promises because God does not change. And you believe. And then the fifth thing is the end of what I did not read with respect to the loss of assurance. And that is that God sets before us what you are to do now in this situation. Yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by their operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. So when you find yourself deserted by God, you know your own heart, and you know that you can say that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You think He doesn't love you, but you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sincere in your heart. You want to do your duty and you cling to that, you see. God will never give you over then to utter despair. So five things to do in your spiritual dereliction. Examine yourself. Speak to yourself of those who have gone before you. Trust in God and your Savior. Believe the promises. And just maintain your conscience that yes, whatever is happening, I love God. And I love the people. But I must give two warnings here. And the first warning is, I'm afraid that perhaps some of you wouldn't recognize spiritual desertion. Because you have been, in your walk with God, mechanical. You, you've not been enjoying His presence. You're, you're like uh, uh, the child who is nearsighted and thinks everybody sees the same way until it puts glasses on. Or the person who's been sick for years and just thinks that's normal. And perhaps some of you are just anemic and spiritually sick and you've been going through all the motions but you've not delighted in God and you've not really been delighted by God. And so you're in such a condition that if He would desert you, you really wouldn't realize it. Because you've not enjoyed him. One of you recently shared with me that the Lord had revived you. And, and I praise God for that. But if you need to examine your heart. This morning is what would you even know? Are you simply living the Christian life mechanically? Then there's the even worse problem. And that is you some might not understand spiritual depression because you've never known God. You've never walked with him. His face has never shined upon you. Oh, you maybe imagined it has, but it hasn't. And uh, you are going through life just whimsically. You're not afraid of the majesty of God consuming you. You haven't thought about it. Or the beauty of God surprising you. Because you're lost. Even now your conscience will bear testimony to you. And you know, everything that I've described here about the Christian spiritual desertion will be your reality in hell. In hell, God will be an unrelenting judge. There'll be no pardon. 
He will be an irreconcilable enemy and a merciless oppressor for all eternity. And so if your conscience convicts you this morning of not even being in Christ, you don't need a message on spiritual desertion. You need to hear God calling you right now to repent and take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our holy God, we thank you for granting to us these portraits in the Bible. Portrait of a, a believer who goes through spiritual depression and desertion and dereliction. We might understand the reality, Lord, of, of how you do deal with us. But we also might understand the awfulness of that condition. And Lord, we, we pray for one another and for ourselves that you would never put us there. But Lord, if you do, that you'll give us wisdom. How to come alongside one another and ourselves how to behave to recognize where we are and, and to behave. Lord, and if some of us this morning are just so lethargic in our walk, so anemic, so sick, Lord, that we wouldn't recognize desertion, would you not quicken us even now? And if there are those here that are unconverted, oh, Lord, that you would deal with them as well. And we ask these things uh, for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.